0: Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories by speaking to the founders of some of the most exciting and innovative businesses
1: by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're speaking to Wilds co-founder and CMO, Charlie Bowes-Lyon. Wild is a sustainable and
0: natural deodorant brand. And if you're on TikTok, you've probably seen their ads. And they are everywhere. What were
1: you keen to find out about, Charlie? Um, when we spoke to him, I think... A lot of people when they're trying to start a business they don't know where to get investment from they don't know who to go to. so I really wanted to pose to him you know who do you go to where do you actually how, how do you pose that question how do you actually secure investment? Uh, and as well you know with our background in marketing and his background in marketing as well, mind you, uh, I really wanted to understand what their strategy was around paid media. It's clearly huge and really important to them so I went into quite some detail on there. I think this conversation was cool because this is a brand
0: that is designed for the connected generation. And It's one that didn't pre-exist before Instagram. They've disrupted a category that is very, very saturated with lots of different brands that I'm, I'm sure everyone's aware of. Um, but when they were designing this product, they were thinking about how people consume media today. Their strategy was completely uh, held that completely in mind. And so it was really interesting thinking about as well um, because it's worth noting that they didn't set out with the idea to come up with wild deodorant. They, they walk us through the process of coming up with a product idea and how you can kind of walk through your house and think about different categories
1: that that product could land in. So for business owners, what do you feel like was, was valuable? So from this specific conversation, the, the good point that he made, ultimately you need a good product. Everything else comes after that. And as well, he had some great ideas on keeping your business growing in hard times. So this is the episode with Charlie, the CMO and co-founder of Wild. Enjoy.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, so just to give our listeners a little introduction into yourself, do you want to talk a little bit about how you got into this industry and a little bit about your previous companies that you've you founded?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I started out my career working, trying to work for myself, and uh, was actually in kind of online publishing had a series of websites where we published different authors and and um, made revenue through advertising and I think at that stage this is 2011 I think um, there we did I didn't do sort of any paid marketing or anything and had to learn quite quickly um, about things like SEO and organic marketing and essentially how to bring people through to a website, but but not spending any money to get them there. So it was uh, it was pretty much self taught. And at the time, I'm sure there was probably a lot of stuff I could have done much better. But definitely a, a steep learning curve and into the world of marketing. And then fast forwards quite a few years, uh, I was working for a company called Nest Nest Studios, who are primarily a advertising agency and, and work with tons of uh, startups across uh, London and, and elsewhere and whilst working there i was i set up a a sort of side hustle business um which was called climate cups and this was my first i suppose foray into the sustainability world and we uh it was my my wife and i um kind of doing it and um we were essentially selling reusable coffee cups and water bottles and they were they collapsed as well and this was the, this was, I think it was Blue Planet 2 had just aired and everyone was suddenly, it was as if everyone kind of woke up to to plastic waste and, you know, supermarkets hadn't yet introduced a charge for plastic bags or any of that stuff. So it was it was fairly kind of new and it it, it went a bit crazy. So I think in our first month we sold like 10,000 of these cups and I wasn't at all set up to um, on the ops side to, to deal with that. So I was sort of fulfilling these things all weekend, day and night. I think uh, Fred, my business partner, came around to my house at one point and there were literally like packages up to the ceiling in the living room. So it was it was true kind of startup stuff, but um, not very sustainable. So I ended up outsourcing all of that and and eventually sold that business privately. But at that point, my co-founder, Fred, uh, was, was also leaving HelloFresh and we decided we, we wanted to go into business together and, and, and that's when Wilde was born.
0: Amazing. And uh, I think the, the glamour of entrepreneurship is maybe exaggerated a little bit on, on social media, especially in the early days. So I wanted to ask, where, where do you think you got that drive to own your own business or run your own business initially when you were first starting Biles Media? What was it that made you, want to, made you decide, I want to do this on my own?
2: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it it wasn't any kind of plan that I'd sort of set out for myself. If if anything, it was born out of a lack of plan. So I think I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And, you know, most of my friends were becoming, you know, chosen that kind of career path by the time we were getting to the end of uni. So I actually started Bose Media um, in my last year at uni, but I, yeah, I just, there was nothing that I kind of saw that I was like, oh, I really want to do that. Or, you know, I really want to work in that industry. And I think I've probably always been quite stubborn and and strong willed. And the idea of um, working for someone else never really appealed to me that much, although I I have done it several times um, later on in my career. But yeah, I think it was, it was more, you know, one day, I had this idea with a friend of mine and we were like, let's, let's give it a go, see what happens. And we sort of surprised ourselves a little bit in that it was sort of vaguely successful and people were actually willing to pay us some money and um, things went from there. And I kind of, if I'm completely honest, made it up as a, as I went along, but I was also 22 or something. So, you know, I had literally zero life experience in, in certainly in business and and um, that was what was available to me. But, you know, Probably I was a bit lucky as well that it that it happened to you know work but but really, down the line, yeah, I think you're right that it's it's not certainly initially it's definitely there's nothing glamorous about being an entrepreneur it's you know nine times out of ten I think people don't don't even launch whatever it is they want to launch and there's a lot of like nervousness and uncertainty and you doubt yourself a lot and but at the same time, once you do get on with it and launch it, it's incredibly exciting and that for me is is why I kept coming back to trying to do things myself is is um that excitement and the joy that you get from when, you know, even if it's a very small milestone that you achieve, um, all the way to the, the bigger ones, the, the kind of excitement and literally not being able to sleep at night because you can't wait to see the revenue figures in the morning or, or whatever it is. It's it sort of seems silly, but the, when it's your kind of baby you have a you have that drive, I guess.
0: Do you think Climate Cups was one of those businesses that was almost because of the timing and almost, if if you don't mind me saying, like, look of things like Blue Planet 2 coming out and climate change getting into the spotlight. Do you think that gave you a much smoother journey? Or do you think, was there anything in that time that you learned where if you had the opportunity to do it again and you had the time again, um, that you would think, I wish I'd done that differently? Or were there any tough uh, times throughout that period that you... That you think back on and think I learned a lot there.
2: I mean, a hundred percent. To answer um, the first bit, it was definitely a product of the time. Like people were just becoming aware of plastic waste. If I'd done it five years before, probably no one would have taken any notice. So, a hundred percent. It was it was a timing thing, and and that's obviously part of why I chose to to launch that at that point. But uh, yeah, I mean, looking back, I would do everything differently. Part of part of that business was to help me. Um, so I was, as I said, a director of, of this business nest, and we were talking with loads of clients, big kind of names you would know, and advising them on their marketing strategy and offering o- offering kind of advice also on the hiring strategy, who they should be hiring in the marketing teams, et cetera. And I felt at the level I was at, I, you know, I needed to get some kind of hands-on experience like all well and good preaching to people. But if you're not actually like walking the walk yourself, things in digital marketing, like Facebook ads, for example, move so quickly that you've kind of got to be doing it to be able to give the best advice because what's true half a year ago isn't necessarily true today. So looking back at that business, I think it could have been a probably a very successful business, but I wasn't in any way prepared for like so many people to buy it. So I didn't have a proper fulfillment set up. Uh, The product, to be honest, wasn't particularly good. It was, it was like I was essentially importing it from China, and there there was like the branding was all basic. Like I I did it all myself, so you know I was trying to be a a one-man trade. And actually, when Fred and I first sat down, we looked at it and said, you know, look, this is doing really well. Do we think this can be like a proper business that we can actually grow and go full time into? Uh, And we. The answer was no, and the reason for that was the whole premise was that you would buy a cup and a and a bottle and like never come back. And we thought for like D to C business, and certainly from what Fred had seen from HelloFresh, like the the key to it is returning customers. And if you don't have good retention of customers, unless you've got a wildly profitable and first purchase um, product it's going to be very hard to do well, which is why we why we sat down and, and kind of rethought about what we wanted to do before before setting up Wild.
0: Got you. So what was it like for both you and Freddie to kind of, because Freddie was the former market director at HelloFresh, what was the sort of conversation like around the point where you wanted to launch Wild and take him uh, out of that role, if that's what happened? What was that like?
2: Yeah, so I mean, Fred was looking basically he so hello Fresh had ipo'd it'd been there since the conception of the uk business so went from zero to 100 million revenue pretty pretty cool story seen and learned a lot of stuff and i think was probably ready to move on and you know he was um doing a bit of consulting and looking around a bit and yeah, I really wanted to start my own business. I've given myself the reassurance that I could make something work, and that I had the sort of marketing know-how and skills to be able to sell a product essentially. And then was really keen on on doing something within the sustainability state space because I felt like it was just a growing thing that you know people wanted better solutions for. To they want like sustainable solutions for products, but there aren't businesses offering them products that are as good as as non sustainable solutions. So that was um big driver for us. And we sat down together and we said, right, we're not leaving the room until we come up with an idea. And we went through all sorts of things, including sustainable fashion marketplace. And always you can probably see actually realised I had absolutely no fashion sense. So <laughs> realised that was a, a bad idea. We looked at the kitchen. Uh, there was quite a few players in the kitchen doing quite well at that point in time. People like Method and Small and we finally settled on the bathroom because we felt like there wasn't many companies paying much attention to bathroom products. And if you think about it, the bathroom is actually the source probably for some of the most single-use plastic anywhere in the house. And not only does the bathroom have a, a kind of huge amount of plastic from shower gel, shampoos, deodorants, et cetera, but a lot of people have bathroom bins and they just put all their bathroom waste into that bathroom bin and the bathroom bin goes into the general waste so it doesn't even go into recycling if it can be recycled even so we felt like this the bathroom was the place that we really wanted to disrupt um and obviously started with the the natural deodorant because again felt like no one had really nailed that Uh, and actually you know deodorant as a product is historically a very boring thing probably the most boring product in the bathroom and we thought, you know, we should like turn it over on its head, flip it over, make it colorful, fun, exciting, something people wanted to share on social media. And that was our sort of, yeah, birth strategy. And then it took another year or so to actually create the product. So it was it was a bit of a process, but yeah.
1: If Tell me if I'm wrong, you'd not operated in this industry before this, had you?
2: Yeah, no, um, no, not at all. Neither of us had really, so it was it was a bit of a, a fresh insight uh,
1: into into this whole world. How like how long was that decision making process for you? Because I can see the decision making process that you're going through. How you landed on right? We're going to go with the bathroom because there's at the least competition there. We're going to go with something that is what seems to be the most boring product in the room and try and make it something quite exciting. When you're not in that industry, the thing that then comes to my mind is, I don't know the first thing about deodorant. Like, how hard is it to actually make these things? Is it even possible to be sustainable? And especially with the with the product you've ended up with, how long was that decision-making process and how long was it until you had conviction on the idea? How did you know that that was the route to go down?
2: Yeah, good question. So from the, from the product side of things, there was a couple of companies in the US, Native and Schmitz, who both... Sold natural deodorants in sort of really simple plastic packaging, but they crucially had cracked like a good natural deodorant, like a well high-performing natural deodorant. And I think credit to them probably brought the sort of science and formulation of making natural deodorant that works forward by however many years, because because historically they haven't really worked very well. So we knew the deodorant sort of side of things could be done, and we had to go away and create our own formulation. And we went through literally I think 30 to 40 iterations of our own deodorant and many of which gave me rashes some of them burnt me like you know some of them were utterly terrible but finally after literally a year we we got to the point where we're like okay this is a good product works really well lasts all day smells great um and yeah I suppose we never lacked the conviction that we could get there because it was always like we're close but this thing isn't right or you know, the product leeches or something like whatever it was. So we've always sort of had conviction we'd get there. And then the other big challenge was obviously the packaging. And that was the innovation side of it, you know, working out how do we actually make this sustainable? How do we get rid of plastic? And, and to be honest... We had confidence, but through absolute naivety, like we we probably had no right to have confidence. We had no idea how difficult it would be to create this packaging. We had no idea how difficult it actually was to remove plastic. I mean, ultimately, plastic is like an amazing material that works incredibly well. And that's why it's so used in, in basically everything. And I think we, yeah, we weren't really naive about how difficult it would be to get rid of it, but. Uh, luckily, we found some great manufacturers. We had a, a great graphic design team uh, called Murama, and with their help, we were able to design, you know, the product that we have today, which is the the refills are made obviously from bamboo pulp which is compostable recyclable breaks down in in under a year if you put it in your garden um so we got there, but it yeah i suppose at the time you're not you're not sort of being like oh am i gonna make it you're just kind of getting on with it and hoping for the best and definitely there was a lot of ups and downs and a lot of fails uh in the early early months but yeah I think the, the 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 lessons just like perseverance you just got to keep going and and you'll get there
1: everything that you've just said there around the different formulations that you've had to go through, some of them giving you a rash, the different iterations probably of the packaging of the products like you say is is quite unique and to be able to get there uh, was that a particularly expensive and well yeah was that a particularly expensive process to go through? It doesn't sound like a very easy process to go through
2: mm it wasn't it wasn't i mean we we were bootstrapped initially with 100k and beyond that i suppose our time and that got us to the point where we were able to launch essentially an mvp so it wasn't the product that you see today but it was essentially a natural deodorant that that was like okay um it was decent and during the first summer, so we so we started basically probably February March, and during the first summer, we went out to try and get funding, so VC funding. Spoke to all the VCs. Some of them were like super interested. We got really close, but essentially none of them went for it because we didn't have a product to show them yet. We hadn't got you know we had some drawings essentially. And to be fair, it's, it's quite a big ask to, to ask people to invest on on a whim. And so, what we had to do is go out with this MVP product in I think we in October maybe or September, and it wasn't a great product, but it was a it was a natural deodorant and just proved that we could sell the thing. So we sold like hundred k's worth of of this product, uh, which had some figures showed like, look, there is a market. They do they will buy natural deodorant because that in itself was an issue. Like, never mind the sustainability. Like, the investors were like, do people want a natural deodorant? Like, it's always been a really niche thing and like the full market size was something like 5 million pounds a year of natural deodorant gets bought in the UK and what investors were struggling to understand is like we weren't going after that 5 million pound market to take 5 million pounds that wasn't our business plan our business plan was to create a market that didn't exist so there was no figures in some Unilever document that you know could show what we wanted to achieve um because no one was doing it yet so it was it was like a yeah, it was a very tough thing to sell into investors, but that sort of MVP run then allowed us to get our first round of funding, which was actually all with angels. Uh, I think we had about fifteen angel investors in the end, and I think we raised half a million. And then that was what enabled us to get to like the launch of our our main product, and and the rest um, flowed on from there. So yeah, it was you know fundraising is is, is part of it as a, I think as a founder, if you want to create a serious business, unless you've got a load of cash yourself, you you need money and you need a half decent idea to, to get that money.
0: And you've given, you've obviously chosen the title of CMO um, within Wild and I think your marketing strategy and the way that you exist on the social space uh, specifically definitely matches the name. Specifically I'm thinking about the most recent ad that you've uh, done that featured the polar bear. If any listeners haven't seen it, I would be shocked because you guys are like very very good at your targeted advertising. Um, but What was that like to sort of go very against the grain? Like when you typically think about deodorant marketing, you think of maybe like someone like Dove, for example, that is just talking about like freshness or moisture moisture, and it's all quite aesthetic and all these kinds of things. And you've gone down the route of something that is way more fun and seems to play into the idea of almost like a little bit of shock factor and shareability. And I was just wondering if that was... A very conscious decision to make that choice based on what you'd seen happening in digital media and your understanding of how things are shared and how ideas spread, or it was it's something that's been sort of a slow build. When did that decision to sort of become that brand uh, that you have today happen?
2: I mean, 100% it, it was a very conscious decision. I mean, ultimately, we chose the name Wild, not just for the connotations with the environment, but also as in crazy, like we we wanted to be out there um, and different. And I think, you know, the polar bear ads is, is, is a great example of that. Ultimately, as a consumer and, and working at Nest, I saw this like you know, the, the the ads industry has grown exponentially and continues to grow, like online advertising is, is huge. All the biggest companies in the world advertise, like they're... they're as in, they are advertisers themselves, Google, you know, Amazon, Facebook, etc. So, basically, you're you're fighting against everyone else to grab someone's attention for more than two seconds, or even for two seconds. And to do that, you know, we have we have, as you rightly say, used like some shock tactics. But also, it's it's very difficult to stand out. And like, not all of our ads have have been successful. But on the whole, I think we try to go for stuff that's light-humored and you know fun and memorable and it would be really easy for us to like go out there and create an ad about the end of the world and like oil killing people and you know all of this stuff and be really doom and gloom and like frighten people into buying these products but we didn't want to create a, a sort of preachy brand we wanted to create a really positive happy colorful bright brand that people that made people feel good about themselves and like our Our kind of ethos isn't that people should be 100 percent sustainable and never do anything that has plastic or anything like that it's like you know if we can help you make a bit of a change to your lifestyle by providing you with a product that is as good if not better than the one you already use but also sustainable then that is a great thing and and like we're really pleased for for you
0: to use our product you touched on a really interesting point in that if you have a great idea you really do need to be able to raise some cash to be able to get it done. Do you have any advice for any listeners that might have amazing uh, business idea, but have no idea where to start finding things like angel investors or what their pitch deck is supposed to look like? If someone was pitching to you, what would you want to see uh, from them?
2: Yeah. Um, to be clear, like I knew no angel investors. When, as I mentioned earlier, when when we got to the end of that like first summer where we'd been speaking to all these vcs and it became kind of apparent that vcs weren't going to invest in us at that stage we were a bit like crap what do we do like we you know where do we go and i think the thing with angels is there's obviously firstly so many of them but secondly that you know convincing one person that you're a good bet can be a lot easier than convincing like a, a kind of organisation and our whole strategy was initially we reached out to tons of people on linkedin Um, And then as we got conversations, we asked each person we spoke to, to introduce us to two more people. And that is probably the single piece of advice I would give to anyone fundraising, looking for angels is anyone you speak to, ask them specifically to introduce you to two more people. I think if you ask for any more than that, it's like less likely that they'll actually do it. But Two is manageable. Most of these investors have co-invested in other companies and probably have two people who who might get involved, and that led us to having this like massive network of people, none of whom we'd met before, who then wanted to invest. And actually, think in the end, we actually had to like cut cut a few people off because we had we had so many, Uh, and there was also a few. There was a couple of business owners who we knew who we who helped us massively um at that point as well in terms of introductions. so yeah fundraising can be hard and, and never harder than that first round when you did, you know we didn't even have a product but i think that trick and is and is 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 what saved us basically so definitely a good method
1: the question i had i read something online and i wanted to see if this was true i read that on well i read that within the first 18 months you generated twenty million pounds in sales. Is that true?
2: Um, I'm trying to do some quick maths here. Uh, yeah, that's that's roughly right. Yeah.
1: And how? Because you started bootstrapped, and I'm not sure of the timeline between starting the business and when you when you took the investment. How critical was that investment to achieving those figures? So we've had three rounds of investment.
2: Um, so the, the bootstrap side of it literally enabled us to you know, get through the door, start some conversations with manufacturers, pay for those initial, you know, pay to start basically creating the product that we wanted to create. To give you an idea, like tooling of our cases alone cost 50 grand. So when you start with a hundred grand, that's like <laughs> quite a sizable <laughs> amount of money. Um, so we needed that first round to to be able, that first like proper round of 500k, which was in, which I think was the end of, I think it was January, uh, so January, 2020. And then we launched in April 2020. We burnt through that 500k pretty quickly because we grew, we grew really aggressively, and just simply having to like start ordering huge amounts of stock meant we 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 needed more cash. So we raised another two million in August of 2020. I think it was August September of 2020, and. That was like a complete opposite experience to the first round. So I think it took us a month and the first round took us six months. Uh, And obviously it was just purely having proof of concept and things were going well. And then fast forward to that lost us until beginning of this year. So we raised in January, we raised 5 million in the beginning of this year. And hopefully we become profitable by the end of this year and and never have to raise again, but we'll see. Um, Maybe that's a bit of a a dream, but that's the aim. So yeah, that's been our, our sort of, Fundraising career, I suppose, but it's you need you need cash early on and like not all businesses do we could have grown very slowly and sustainably and not needed cash and been profitable from the beginning, but to grow to as you say like 20 million or the size we are now 30 million plus in a year as quickly as we have, you need a cash injection because ultimately we've got to buy stock now for where we think we'll be in November and December. And where we are, in November and December is going to be 100 percent higher than where we were last November and December. So we're, we're essentially having to pay for the growth that we will see in three or four or five months' time. And you have to have like a bank of cash to do that. And we're we're selling a million refills a month plus now. So it's I'm glad I'm not the one having to do the numbers. Put it that way. It's it's quite <laughs> quite, quite complex.
1: Well, it sounds. I was about to say it sounds really well premeditated. Did did you always have an idea that it was going to go this big this quickly? Was that always the plan?
2: um one thing we were like really bullish on and what we tried to sell into investors early on was that we knew how to do marketing and like performance marketing in particular was our bread and butter and that you know you could give me anything and i'd probably be able to sell it so providing we got a good product we would you know be on being in a good position um we we definitely outperformed like, our plans we didn't forecast to investors even, and you tend to give quite optimistic forecast to investors when you're fundraising. Uh, We we didn't forecast anywhere near what we've actually done. We're now much better at that. We're like pretty much bang on this year where, where we said we'd be, which is great. We're a little bit ahead. But I think in those early days, we didn't expect to be where we are now, certainly. It's funny how very quickly you kind of change your expectations for what you want for the business and where you see it going. And also we've learned a whole lot, right? You know, so this is the first sort of big business if you like that that either of us have have run and I think you learn a lot very very quickly uh and and so you change. You just got to be flexible and change change your initial strategy and initial targets to to suit where you are basically.
1: You mentioned there that one of the big things for for you was that you had a strong background in marketing, you knew what you would do if you had your hands on a really strong product. What channels are the most effective for you? Is there any that plays right into what your product is about and what you're trying to say to people?
2: Yeah, so social commerce, we we designed our product to be shared on Instagram, basically originally. You know, the idea to us that people could organically take a deodorant and start talking about it on their Instagram stories to their friends is like that was so alien before we started doing well. But that was what we wanted to like chase and create something that, just looked really cool that people wanted to show off and it's not just you know people show it off because they a want to be showing people look at me i'm i'm like sustainable i'm i'm making changes and you should too but b also because like it's stylish and it looks cool and you know they they like taking pictures of it and we engage with them and they get involved with the brand and they feel sort of part of our our mission and brand and we've spent a lot of time developing Different Facebook groups, our Instagram accounts. Um, we have a, a sort of VIP customer group, which you know is I think like four or five thousand strong now. Um, the people who really, really engage with us, and you know, we can our, our whole strategy for launches and things is is based on what the customer says. So we will go into those groups and we'll be like, right. We're thinking of releasing these cents, and we list like ten it's like what one would you like to see? They vote for the their most favorite, and that's the one we launched so it's like a the the real benefit I suppose of of direct to consumer businesses is that you have that direct relationship with your audience and uh, no other type of business has that, and we can get feedback within an hour on any single question and have such a deep insight into our own business that we're then able to create exactly the product that we already know our audience want because they've already told us that that's what they'll buy. So in a way, it's like a, yeah, it's like a kind of circular marketing method where, you know, we're informed by our customer and then hopefully we we create what the customer wants and
0: it, it keeps on going like that. It would be good to get your thoughts on this trend of because our our work is very much involved in the realms of TikTok and everything that goes on there and when we're looking at products and see products on there a lot of the time the products that go extremely viral have this something about it that isn't necessarily uh, doesn't necessarily have any effect on the actual use or effect of the product but is simply there to create something striking and that would effectively stop you scrolling down the feed if you're starting a business if you would start again do you think having this element of if you had a face mask you would make it like a very striking color uh, for example do you feel like this is something that is essential to new products today or do you think you can still achieve success without building in this sort of TikTokable or shareable factor
2: no i don't think it's essential and i think like make no mistake
0: to be successful you need a good
2: product i think you can be averagely you can do all right you can have a small business on an average product uh if you know how to market well and and by using um, methodologies that you mentioned but if you want to create a successful business you need to have a product that is good that people love because otherwise they won't come back and buy more from you and, and ultimately we can have the best marketing in the world. If the natural deodorant doesn't work on anyone, they're not gonna buy it again. And we don't make money on a first purchase. So we're not gonna have a, a business that works. So it's, yeah, super product is is the most important thing. Definitely. And I say that as a marketing person, it's, it's the number one thing, but close second is knowing how to market. And I don't think you have to do crazy things in all your ads. I think what you have to do is, A grab attention and B be convincing. And those two things can be done in different ways. It can be that, you know, you do a kind of crazy thing on TikTok that grabs attention, or it can be that you have a really energetic, well-known person or influencer speaking about your product. And then, you know, ultimately the ads needs to have, you know, needs to sell your product and it needs to do that in a in a in a way that gets across your USPs and, and and why people should buy you. So I think the fundamentals of 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 advertising haven't really changed. I think it's just a more busy market now and it's harder to stand out. And I suppose it sounds almost like cheap parlor tricks to kind of put flashing colors or something at the beginning of your ad. But it's I don't think that's the answer. I think people just have to think a little bit more about their creative because it used to be on Facebook, for example, that. And it it was fun to do this, but it was like it's all about knowing how to use the Facebook Power Editor, as it was then, like getting into the nitty-gritty of your campaigns, segmenting audiences, creating lookalikes, combining them, like all all that kind of, you know, getting really deep into it. Whereas now, most of these platforms, you you just target broad, and like the algorithms are better than any individual can ever be anyway. Plus, we've lost a lot of the data through the iOS updates last year, so. It's all about creative now, and like you have to put a lot of work into creative. When it comes to TikToks, so we do we do a lot of TikTok advertising. The the CPMS are so much cheaper. The the like quality of traffic is is probably worse. Like it will convert way worse on your site than say Facebook will, but you'll get way more people through. And as long as you have engaging content that is right for TikTok and appeals to people on TikTok, you'll probably do well. And by the way, those. TikTok ads aren't the same ads necessarily that will work on Facebook or YouTube or Instagram, like more and more so they actually are now because Instagram's becoming like TikTok. But I think, yeah, it's ads need to be made for the platform that you're sharing them on and for the audience that are viewing them. And if you can do authentically interesting ads to that audience, then you'll do well.
0: Obviously, previously, this is happening more and more so with the rise of TikTok obviously started with mainly platforms like Instagram, like you've mentioned, you want the almost consumer-to-consumer marketing happening where people are talking about your product actively, separately from the Wild brand or messaging that is being delivered by the Wild brand. Is that consumer-to-consumer marketing something that you guys are actively invested in? or Because I know that you're still very much developing yourselves as a brand and creating a personality. Ads are coming directly from Wild and you're building this almost character-up and persona around Wild as well. Are you experiencing a shift at all in this idea of building uh, this consumer-to-consumer environment that Wild's been marketing in as well?
2: Uh, yeah, we, we do a huge, like most of our TikTok marketing is is that. We do quite a lot of it on Facebook now as well, a bit on YouTube. I was, I was actually at a meta talk yesterday, but um, they were saying this as well. I think, I think the key is to have some of everything. So, you don't want to have just one type of ad because essentially, over time, people will grow bored of it or like they'll glaze over when they see it. You need to have images, you need to have like videos, brand videos that you've made that are both high quality and probably like quicker ones to make. You need to have UGC, you need to have whitelisting. So, you know, you need to have creators selling you from their own accounts. And then you need to have creators on your own account selling you. So I think it's just like a mixture of all these methodologies gives you the best chance of success. And yes, some of them are going to uh, some of them are going to work better on different platforms. TikTok, you know, um creator consumer to consumer marketing works much better than while putting out a whole load of brand ads. But on Facebook that's not necessarily the case. So it's again, it's about like knowing different platforms and how they resonate. And so often, like I'll hear brands say, Yeah, oh, but TikTok doesn't work for us. And I'm like, Well, probably because you're trying to put your Facebook ads on it. And, you know, people are like, Oh, it's an ad. And they, they immediately scroll up. So, yeah, I think it's a hugely growing part of our advertising strategy. And definitely do think probably advertising is evolving to at the moment to favor that style of advertising. And that comes off the back of influencer marketing becoming a massive thing and tiktok becoming a massive thing so who knows but it it all moves so quickly i mean tiktok you know has only really just started working well and suddenly it's you know now working really well and who knows in half a year it might be the number one so it's like it's all moving very quickly and likewise it might there might be another new platform who knows but i think you just got to adapt and and try everything and test everything and if you do that you'll likely find um something that works
0: one quick question that i did want to ask just about the the way that you sell your products you obviously started off with a very successful econ brand but then decided to also stock products in uh stores like sainsbury's boots waitrose uh, selfridges etc what what are the advantages of stocking in physical locations like that versus just moving everything through a sort of higher margin e-com platform.
2: Yeah, good question. So again, this was some this was a very premeditated move by us. So I think in my my last job, we consulted with with loads of different companies and, and and one thing over time I sort of saw or a bit of a pattern I saw is between companies that were successful and companies that weren't was that companies that, that were successful really diversified in every possible area they could. So to put that in context for Wild, we wanted to, firstly, make sure we weren't over-reliant on any given channel, so not just be a Facebook brand. We wanted to make sure we were on YouTube, TikTok, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, all all the channels, Google, uh, make sure referral was big, make sure we had loads of affiliates, make sure we had loads of partnerships, et cetera. Uh, Secondly, diversify geographies. So don't get stuck in just one place because, let's say, for example, the UK has a really bad recession and like no one buys anything, we could move our marketing spend to Germany or to somewhere else in Europe or America or Australia, and be able to quite quickly react to to macroeconomic things that were completely out of our our sort of control. And then the third one is is to diversify your channels so. You know, even being just online, I think COVID was probably the biggest like lesson of all for this retailers and and hospitality. They they were like completely stuffed by COVID, and and it's no way their fault, obviously. But it was like such an out of the blue thing, no one expected. Suddenly, no one was able to go to a restaurant for however long, or go into a high street shop, and like that completely stuffed them. So for us, it's like have online, have retail, have you know, third party uh, sellers, um, potentially down the line, even like B2B, some of our future products, hopefully we can, you know, stock them in hotels and bathrooms and things like that. So I think it's just like diversify your everything, essentially. And and by doing that, you reduce your risk in case something goes wrong, whether it's like a macro effect or or something um, within your own company.
0: Do you feel like you have over the years that you've been in the industry one big lesson that you you would pass on to someone if you could?
2: There's there's one kind of generic thing that I've seen through my own friends who've either launched or tried to launch businesses that I've always tried to not do or make sure I don't do when I when I launch my own businesses, and that is I think when you're a finder or a potential finder, you. Can get obsessed with the idea of perfection. And it's like you are putting basically you're putting your neck on the line publicly because ultimately when you launch something, the first people you tell are your family and friends. But you're you're putting your neck on the line with a product and saying, This is basically what I've created. And you're inviting, if we're being candid, like everyone to judge you based on what you've produced. And that leads to people trying to create this perfect product or the perfect website or the perfect whatever it is. And I've seen people spend years like trying to do that and then they never get to launch, never even launch it because they run out of money or turns out like they spent two years on making the absolute perfect website but they never actually tested that people would like the product or anything like that. So I think my my advice is like launch imperfectly, just get something out there get feedback from it and then grow and improve as you go along and like to this day we're still improving our packaging we're still improving our deodorant we're reiterating it all the time based on the customer feedback we get and that's how I think you get to hopefully eventual perfection um, or at least a very good product or website whatever it is but just like don't sweat about trying to make everything look great and eventually if you ma- if you make it in the end like no one remembers the first state of the product anyway so it's you know it's it's like probably a couple of cu- a couple of hundred customers or something so I think my kind of piece of advice to anyone looking to start a business is just get on with it and launch something as, as soon as you have a like minimal viable, viable product
1: is there anyone in your black book that has been instrumental to to get to where you are now and if there is, is there a type of person that you'd advise people to go and find?
2: Yeah, um, good question. So so I'd say like having founded a business by myself before, I think one piece of advice I would give, and maybe it's just for the type of person I am or character that I am, is that finding or starting a business with someone else is so, so much better because you have that signboard and like someone to share the lows and the highs with who understands everything that you're going through and, and someone that can also like rebuff bad ideas you might have that everyone has that, that and also be like yeah that's a good idea and and, and kind of do that so I, I definitely think having a, a co finder has been really instrumental for me personally in terms of people who've, who've sort of helped there's there's one guy called Wilk Stores who who uh, is founder of a company called utility in the energy sector and uh, he in in that first fundraising moment when we were looking for angels he like went out of his way to meet me introduce like loads of people to me and i think you really remember those types of people who kind of go out of their way through like no other reason than just kindness and so you know i've tried to help him when i can since then i probably haven't really done much but i think there were like you know there were also partners like i mentioned earlier marama the um, industrial design company that, that helped us create our packaging Like as as we said earlier I you know we didn't know much about the cosmetic space or, or personal care space and like they really helped us find a manufacturer they helped us with you know the design they came up with the design work out like what materials to use so like they were really instrumental early on um, in helping us design our product and I think you you know you have to You have to identify where your strengths and where your weaknesses and product design at that point in time was definitely our weakness because we had no experience in it whatsoever so um finding them was was pivotal to us creating the product that we created for sure
0: brilliant all right, well, I think that was a lot of insight for people listening there, whether you are starting a business or whether you have a business and you need that fresh perspective. Um, but thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time and joining us on the podcast. That was uh, that was really good.
2: Not at all. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps.